Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith. She's a board-certified internal medicine physician and work-life integration researcher. Sandra's latest book is called Sacred Rest, Recover Your Life, Renew Your Energy, Restore Your Sanity. In it, she presents the idea that we all need seven different types of rest to fully feel alive and fully ourselves. It was her own burnout as a physician and a mom to toddlers that inspired her to explore why so many of us aren't able to replenish our energy, even when we pull all the usual levers. I'll let Dr. Sandra tell you more about that. So let's get to my chat with Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith. I was super fascinated when I heard about your theory of rest. It's quite poetic how you've broken it down and extremely imaginative and so resonant. And so I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your amazing road to kind of focusing on this subject. Yeah. You know, to be honest, I, I wish I could say as a physician, this was like one of those things where I just had this great research idea and just dove in. I mean, if we're being completely honest, I was a very busy professional with two toddlers, both in diapers and two years and under. And I burned out. And I, you know, I had the medical background as board certified, graduated from medical school with honors. And I did not have what I needed to be able to know how to prevent becoming burned out. My profession just lended itself to you work hard and that's what you do. And you don't really think about how do you recover after all of that. So the journey started there. It started with me literally on my floor in my foyer, looking up at my chandelier thinking, how did we get here with all the things? Every It looks so successful from the outside and it feels so horrible from the inside living it. 
if I could build that life, then I could build something different. And so that's what started the journey to looking to see what exactly type of tired am I? Because it wasn't just sleep. I needed more than sleep. So can you talk to me a little bit about what the felt experience of that burnout felt like both physically, emotionally, mentally? Oh, absolutely. I remember very vividly one particular time when I came home from picking up the kids at daycare and having been at the hospital in my office all day. And I remember looking at my husband and he was trying to touch me or something. I don't know what he was doing, but I was like, (laughs) I don't have anything for you here. It's like, I've given every ounce of what I had in that hospital and at that office. And that's what it felt like. I felt like every day my life was like this, this sifter. And I was sifting out all the goodness. And at the end of the day, there was just nothing left nothing for me, nothing for my marriage, nothing for my kids. And I'm, you know, the reality is I was doing all of those things for these people, but there was just no part of me left. I couldn't enjoy any aspect of my life. It felt very empty, even though it looked so full. And I think that that's the experience that I think about whenever I think about that moment, how empty it felt. And was it, empty and sad? Was it forlorn? Was it just like so tired you couldn't even feel anything? Yeah, I physically hurt. I I actually got to a place where my body hurt. My mind was not clear. I had a lot of issues with just being able to concentrate. I felt like I was always thinking. It's like nonstop recycling of information. I was always processing information. I also got to a place where emotionally, I would probably say I was more depressed than I would say anxious because it was a giving up. I almost got to this place where I really felt like I just don't want to do this anymore. If this is, if this is what it looks like, I don't want it. And so there was just kind of a giving up, especially since I couldn't find any information at the time, other than to tell me I just needed better sleep. There was a whole sleep revolution happening. Everybody was talking about sleep because we're, this is about 10, 10 or so years ago. So everybody was talking about sleep. And I put a huge emphasis on that. I mean, I had sleep studies done, all my hormones checked, all these things to try to find out what was wrong with my sleep. And my sleep was high quality. I mean, I was getting eight hours of documented, high quality sleep, and I was still exhausted. And as a physician, I imagine you had access to any kind of blood lab, any kind of working in a hospital. Was it kind of a process of elimination? Did you see a primary care physician and say like, I feel terrible. Let's go through every conceivable eventuality. Absolutely. That that was the benefit of actually being inside of the profession. (laughs) I was able to do all of that. I was able to actually do a, a full sleep study with the electrodes on my head, the whole nine yards, a full sleep evaluation, the full lab work to really evaluate, not to say that it was all covered by insurance because it obviously wasn't, but it was, I was able to actually afford to pay for these studies outright and find out, is there something wrong with my thyroid levels or my cortisol levels or my, my women's health hormones? And all of these things were completely and totally normal which honestly at the time felt a little bit like a slap in the face because I could understand how when patients, when I would tell them, you know, everything's normal, it, you almost feel like it's in your head, but you know, you're tired. 
Yeah. I think that's, that's a common refrain that I hear from women in general. You know, I feel exhausted. I went to my doctor. He told me everything was fine. And so, you know, I, on my own kind of wellness journey, I'm always thinking about like, well, what could it be? You know, is it hormone imbalances? Is there, is, are there mycotoxins? Are you really low in B vitamins? But the idea that there's this whole realm of rest that we really haven't brought into the bigger vernacular is so, is utterly fascinating. And I think, and I'm going to ask you all about it, but I think also maybe potentially harder for women who are constantly beating ourselves up that we have to do more and give more and be everything for everybody. Like as we start to talk about this realm of rest, how did you even begin to give yourself permission to think about all of these areas that you weren't allowing yourself to rejuvenate and regenerate? Yeah, that's such an important question because I think that probably was the hardest part of the journey, getting to a place where I respected rest. I think that's where the title of the book comes from, Sacred Rest, because I had to start putting some value on it. The way I'm, a, I'm the type of person where I'm a high achiever. I like doing stuff. I like getting things done. Give me a goal. Let me check it off the list and move on to the next thing. That's my personality. And I can't change that. That's just who I am. But I had to learn that in order to be at my highest level of capacity, in order to be at my highest level of creativity, I had to get a new respect for rest and and actually put some importance on it the same way I did the work. And I think that was the mindset shift that that was the hardest because it, it fought back against who I am. You know, for me, rest was what weak people did who couldn't keep up with the rest of us. (laughs) So so it's like, okay, this is what I have to do to actually do what I want to do. It was hard. It was a hard pill to swallow. I'll be honest with you. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So I would love to kind of go down one by one, these different types of rests. There's the physical, the mental, the spiritual, the emotional, the social, the sensory and creative, which blew my mind when I read about that one. Let's start with physical rest. What happens when we need physical rest? So yes, physical rest has two different parts to it. There are the passive forms of physical rest that include sleeping and napping. And then there's the active forms of physical rest, which are those things that actually improve your 
body flexibility, your lymphatics, your circulation. So it includes things like yoga, stretching, foam rollers, massage therapy, leisure walks. So, and I think that's the first kind of disconnect we have to start making when we think about rest. It's not just the cessation activities like sleeping and napping and laying around on the couch watching TV all day. It's, it's those things that are actually pouring back into us, those restorative processes. So there are active components to it, and we have to start looking at it that way. What pours back into the places of our depletion? Of course, my brain goes to like, oh, great. There's such a thing as like unproductive physical rest. You know, I'm like thinking about it through that lens. But if we are, if the quality of the physical rest isn't integrative, right? Like if we're watching terrible TV shows for eight hours a day, like, is that less beneficial rest than if we're meditating or out in nature, you know, walking and and inhaling? Yeah, it really depends on where the actual rest deficit is at. Because if the rest deficit specifically is coming from, you mentioned about being in nature, if the rest deficit specifically is coming from a creative rest deficit, then yes, being in nature or being around something that's inspirational and and that really awakens your creativity is going to feel more restorative than something that doesn't actually meet the need of where you have the deficit. I think that's where it gets really tricky because oftentimes what's happening for many of us, we are doing restorative activities, but the restorative activity we're doing isn't actually related to the place where we are experiencing our greatest rest deficit. So we're getting rest, but we're not necessarily getting the type of rest that would be most beneficial for us. So as far as mental rest goes, how do we become mentally depleted? What are the key factors in sort of that depletion and exhaustion? Yeah. So with mental rest, it, for most people, it deals with how you're processing information. Some of us are over-processors. We are thinking about what we're thinking about all the time. So it's a consistent kind of regurgitation of information you're the person who lays down at night and you can't clear your mind. You're thinking of your to-do list. You're thinking of all the things that are going on, or maybe you're brainstorming, you know, in the middle of the night, right before you go to bed. And all of that over-processing kind of keeps the mental space jumbled. You mentioned mindfulness. Mindfulness techniques are part of what we use for mental rest. So whether that's meditation For some people, it could be just actually being very intentional about focusing their concentration when they're doing work. So rather than multitasking, which is more mentally draining, they're focusing their attention and they're they're doing deeper work in smaller periods of time, maybe time blocking certain activities so that they go deep rather than staying very superficial. So the ways that you get mental rest are those things that help the mind to, to focus and concentrate. You know, and interestingly enough, some people actually get their best mental work, mental rest rather, when they're doing a physically active activity. I'll give you an example, like joggers or runners oftentimes will say, I just feel like I can clear my head when I go out for a jog. Well, part of that is when they're jogging, they're focusing their their thoughts on things like their cadence and their breathing, which is almost like a meditative process. They're focusing their thoughts down. So even though their physical body is not resting, mentally, they may be experiencing mental rest because of that kind of fine-tuned concentration. That's interesting. I think I have that when I cook because I'm so focused on what I'm doing that I don't worry about anything else. Yeah. So you narrow your attention down 
And in doing so, you clear out the clutter, so to speak, all those other things that would, that would try to vie for your attention. How do you get your mental rest? My favorite form of mental rest is usually when I am meditating on something very specific. So I usually will pick a word or a, a theme for the day that I kind of meditate my thoughts down on. And usually it's the opposite of whatever is trying to kind of keep me from getting there. So sometimes the word will be peace. Sometimes the word will be gratitude or joy, just a specific word to kind of make my attention focus on what I want to think about. Do you have a word of the day every day? Most days I do have a word that I'm focusing on. That's very cool. Now, this one's really interesting. Like, how do we become spiritually depleted? Yeah, spiritual depletion and spiritual rest is so interesting because it varies based on people's different belief systems. And so at the very core of spiritual rest is looking at that need we have to belong, to kind of give back to something bigger than ourselves, to be part of something bigger than ourselves, to kind of be interconnected with humanity as a whole. And so a lot of times what happens, that feeling that we are spiritually depleted comes when we have that disconnect where we feel like, oh, well, my life doesn't really matter. I'm not really beneficial to other people around me. And you're not really seeing yourself as part of of the bigger picture. You know, some people experience that in faith-based communities. Other people experience it in certain organizations that they may be engaged in or humanitarian work that they may be engaged in. It's like, what are you passionate about so much? Because simply because you feel like it connects you to humanity as a whole. It connects you to everything else that's happening around you and not just you. So the antidote is to spiritual depletion is sort of connecting with a a context of why your life is important or. Absolutely. Why you matter, why you matter matter. beyond and, and not just why you matter in the work that you do, why you specifically matter because each of us brings something different to the table. Even if you're sitting down, you know, at a convert to have a conversation with someone, you know, my latest book that I have coming out is called colorful connections. Basically it's leading people towards conversation with people who don't look like them to branch out into different ethnicities, different cultures, and to understand that we each bring something different to the table through our shared experiences and that there's a resting that comes in that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that you believe in God or you don't believe in God. Although I can imagine if you have a strong connection with the divine or whatever that is for you, that you, that might be a way to plug in and, you know, fill yourself up with that spiritual, you know, life force. That's exactly right. Yes. So it's, so it's different for every person. I also recognize that people who who completely do not have my belief still experience a form of spiritual rest deficits simply because we all still need that interconnectedness with each other. So I'm always telling people, you know, enter into that at the point of which you're comfortable, because I think the, the pressure and the force on it is more work than rest. It's supposed to have a peacefulness with it. There's a process and it's just entering into it at the place that you feel most comfortable. Mm, right. So what is emotional exhaustion? Rest depletion for someone who has an emotional rest deficit specifically would look like if you're someone who's ever thought of yourself as a people pleaser, you know, you are basically conforming your emotions and your thoughts to appease somebody else or to fit into something else. 
sometimes if someone feels like they are always on, they're always having to present themselves a certain way. There's a, um, I sometimes call it professional stress related to that. Cause as a physician, I'll use myself as the, the guinea pig here as the example. So, you know, if I show up in an ICU and I'm traditional internal medicine, which basically means I see my patients from the office to the ER to the ICU. So I live in a smaller town and that's kind of how we do it. So my patients, when they get to the ICU, they're not strangers to me. I mean, I know their dog's name. I know their grandkids. I've seen the baby pictures. And so when I'm in that setting, if we're at a life or death moment and, you know, in that moment, I know that patient's not going to make it. And I'm sharing that with the family. My emotions don't turn off. You know, I'm, I'm still emotionally attached to my friend who's now in the, in the ICU bed. I still can't burst into tears or have an emotional response because of the professionalism that's demanded in the moment that doesn't serve the patient or the patient's family or my nursing staff. So I hold all of that in, but that's, I still have to deal with it. And I think when I say professional stress, many of us deal with that on different levels. We have an emotional load that we hold on to because of the roles that we play. And that could be someone who over the past couple of months with the pandemic, who had to lay off staff members and act as if they were okay with it, even though they maybe were not. That could be a parent who lost a job and trying to figure out how they're going to pay for their kid's college, and they're acting like it's okay. All of these people have a professional stressor and an emotional load that they're holding on to. And so the emotional rest comes when they have the opportunity and the freedom to express how they're feeling without fear of it hurting someone else. And you know, and the, the trick with that is knowing where the safe places to do that, because every place isn't safe to, to get the emotional rest you need to be able to share authentically and, you know, without the barriers, what you're feeling on the inside. So would boundaries kind of be the antidote to that? Boundaries are, is a huge component of it, specifically with those who are people pleasers. I often say that it's boundaries and learning how to use the word no. I find that too often we're saying yes to things that really should have a no attached to them. Anytime you're giving a yes out of fear, guilt, or shame, that should always be a no, because that yes is coming from an unpure place. You're giving it for something for, for reasons that are only going to make you feel worse by saying yes. It's super interesting, you know, I think like to, to look at, look at it through this particular filter of like, like, no wonder we're exhausted if we're running ourselves ragged and all of these different tangents of I'm talking to you and I'm thinking, my gosh, I have to bring so much more presence to each one of these branches of the rest tree, you know, because I think we, I've always just conflated them all into just being tired. I totally get it. <laughs> I totally get it. And, you know, as a physician, I think that's part of the reason this is how my brain just naturally segments out sometimes. But, you know, I think about it this way. If a patient comes into my ER and they say, hey, doc, I'm tired, or, or what they typically will tell me is, hey, doc, I have a pain. I, I mean, what do I do with that? Hey, I have a pain. I'm like, what hurts? Is it your head, your hand, your leg, your heart? Because how I respond would be different based on where the pain's at. However, people are every day saying, hey, I'm tired. How do you respond to that? How do they even know what they need 
unless they're getting more specific about what kind of tired they are. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to NordicKnots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Social exhaustion. Now, this is a really interesting one because I think we're social creatures. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it, it could very well be a boundary issue again. But how do you begin to delineate like where it's socially acceptable to carve time out for yourself? And like, I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic was the ability to really pull out of, obviously it was forced, the forced pull out of social lives. And then really sitting with the impact of that lack of socialization. And, you know, for me anyway, I think I've been overextending myself. And it wasn't until I read your work that I thought, oh my gosh, this is social exhaustion. I'm interested in your perspective on this, especially post-pandemic, like are people looking at their social lives and social responsibilities differently? I think so. And I I think it definitely plays a role in how someone is genetically kind of put together with whether whether you are someone who's extroverted or introverted or, you know, if depending on kind of that part of yourself. But, you know, with social rest, it's really looking at very similar to physical, the two aspects of it. You're looking at the aspect of how much social interaction do I need to actually feel good? And how much time alone do I need? How much solitude actually helps me to stay in a good place? But then on the other side, you're also needing to evaluate your relationships to see how many of your relationships are negatively pulling from you socially And how many of them are positively pouring back into you? I call them the life-giving relationships because, you know, most of the people that we love the most, our kids, our elderly parents, our spouses, our coworkers, all those people, they need things from you. So they're always pulling on you socially. And so then you have to think, well, who are the people in my life who don't need anything from me? They just, I enjoy being around them and they enjoy being around me. And the reality is most of us have very few of those people that we spend time with. They may be in our life, but the people who are negatively pulling on us are so loud and so consistently pulling at us that they just consume all the time. 
So we have to just really be intentional about spending time with our life givers. Those people who don't need anything, they just, you just, you actually get filled up just by being in their presence. That's like girlfriends, right? That's what they're for. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, with the pandemic, that one interesting thing that did come out of that, because my two closest friends, one's in Canada and the other one's in California, we, and I'm on the East coast. So we're, we're never together for long periods of time, but we made a point every year for the past 10 years of getting together for our girls time together. Then the pandemic hit and, you know, she can't even get out of Canada without like a, like a, a full issue going on. So, you know, it's one of those things where we've had to learn how to really appreciate the, the virtual power of presence, because that's, that can be just as beneficial if you're really intentional about it. So did you find that you were able to fill yourself up socially with those people, even though you were remote? Yeah, we really got very intentional about making sure our time together, whenever we did it virtually, we did it, we've been doing it even before then once a month. But when we couldn't even get together during our normal times, we those became even more precious. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, it'll just be like a sort of a recalibration socially going forward. I, I mean, I wonder this for myself and my friends, like, I really did used to say, oh, I, I'll just pass by this cocktail party. Uh, you know, I just, it's important that I show up and, you know, or yes, I'll, I'll go and, you know, show up for somebody that doesn't necessarily fill me back up in the same way. And I have kind of like put a moratorium on that. Like, I don't want to do that anymore. Awesome. <laughs> That's <laughs> That that is exactly what every woman needs to do, because I feel like too often we say our yeses are for reasons for fear, guilt or shame. You're like, if I don't go, then what is this person going to say? If I don't go, then this person's going to be mad if I don't go. And if you don't go, you don't go. But you feel good about it because you're doing what's authentic and true to you. And so I feel like there's so much pressure off of that, you know, and and don't get me wrong. I do realize there are times that we have to do things for whatever reason, you know, obligations or whatever reasons that we may not want to do them. But I always say when, whenever those opportunities happen, I always look to see, is there something greater in the future that I would want to say yes to? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to go right now, but if going to this whatever it is, will open up a door for this opportunity. And that is an opportunity that I want. Well, then I feel like my yes is in alignment with where I want to go. However, if the yes is just because you're trying to not make someone mad or whatever reason, it should still stay a no. Absolutely. I've noticed too, as I've gotten older, you know, I feel much better about my nose now that I'm in integrity about my nose. Like when I was in my twenties, I was so in people pleaser mode that I would, you know, tell a white lie and say, Oh, I can't, you know, I'll be out of town or I have something else. Cause I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but then you feel sick and sort of the shame of having not just been true to yourself. And so now you know, my friends make fun of me because they're like, I know you're going to say no, but <laughs> you know, but I, I, I feel, and I think it took me like until I think I was at least 45 until I started to really sink deeply with vigor into this, but I'm really honest with, about my limitations, about my feelings, my, you know, levels of exhaustion. And I just say, I love you. I'm not leaving my house, you know? 
And, and I think that's what has to happen because right now we have a we have a chronically burned out culture. Most of my work right now is around workplace well-being consulting with my company Restoracis. And you know, when I'm invited into most of our bigger corporate companies where that are run by people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, all of them are burned out at the at the, the C-suite level. They're all burned out and they're all having the very same conversation you just stated they kind of grew up with this mentality that you say yes to everything and then you just deal with it. And then I'm seeing this younger culture that's coming that some of the millennial groups, the twenties and 30 year olds who are start, you know, with their own startups and their CEOs as well within their own startups is a completely different mindset where there's an ownership of no. And I think that is actually the transition that all of us have to make to get to a healthier place where we own the nose and understand that, yes, there are, there are things that happen, there are consequences to our nose, but we take ownership of them. Right. And, and we know that, you know, from saying that we are at least being authentic and true to ourselves. Yeah, it's true. I think it's very heartening and wonderful that the younger generation are, you know, they're so different. It's amazing. It's really wonderful to see in like the, the sense of self and, and how they're approaching things with this idea of who they are and what's right for them. And, you know, as I said, it took me like until I was in my forties to start, you know, contemplating that whatsoever. Is this particular to Americans like this drive, this kind of like wearing exhaustion as a badge of honor, you know, in, in any of your research, did you, did you come across other countries who prioritize rest or, or is is this like specific to capitalism, I guess, is what I'm really wondering. There does seem to be more of a problem in the States than there, there are in other areas, but interestingly enough, you know, when I'm looking at over this past couple of years, just looking how the research has resonated in certain areas, it seems to be universal that Mm -hmm. everybody right now is dealing with some level of exhaustion and that whole concept of segmenting out and looking at rest as individual types. There was an article that came out in The Guardian where one of the reporters actually read the book and put it into practice. It's very interesting to see, to see that because putting it into practice to see if it worked. And so I loved her write-up because it was, you know, I, I had no say in what she was going to put in there and it was all positive. And then to see how that particular article hit in hit in um, Australia and then hit in Brazil and then hit in Ireland and all these different places around the world and the comments that are coming in, it, one thing what that made me see is that fatigue does not have a geographic location, that you know, it's across the board, people are exhausted. And I think for a lot of people, it's not just that they need more sleep. They know that they may maybe are not getting more than five or six hours, but even when they try to get more sleep, they're still exhausted. The sensory rest is, is interesting because I imagine that we are so bombarded by, I think technology certainly probably has not helped. It would, would that be classified in the sensory rest, like phones, you know, like traffic, pollution, anything physical? Yes. So sensory rest definitely includes the gadgets. 
any bright lights, sounds. You know, when you're thinking about sensory rest, I often tell people to just when you show up at wherever you do most of your work, for just a moment, appreciate the sensory input. What are the sounds you're hearing? Because sometimes it could be as simple as if you're at your home office, it could be your kids laughing and playing in the other room or the TV playing in the background or the elevator going off at your office space or the telephones ringing in the conference room down the hall. Oftentimes, there's so many sensory inputs that are going on in the periphery that we are not even cognitively aware of. However, unfortunately, our subconscious is aware of it. And we can even be responding to it, even if we're not completely aware. Because for most of us, if we become sensory overwhelmed, our response is irritation, agitation, rage, or anger. And so, you know, something as simple as hearing the elevator go off down the hall from your desk could be enough to be keeping you on edge by the time you leave at the end of the day. So that's really a nervous system thing, right? Absolutely. So with sensory overload and all the light sounds and notifications on our phones, bells and whistles, all of those things, really it adds to the nervous system. It increases our cortisol response. For most of us, it's then causing us to have a reaction based on off of that. Right. Because there's a whole, your whole system can be triggered by a sensory assault, right? And then it's quite hard to calm all the way back down from it. And unfortunately, you know, most of our jobs now do have a level of electronic involvement that you can't get rid of. You, you can't not check email. I mean, it's one of those things where it's part of most of our lives. So for a lot of people, it's not getting rid of all sensory input. That's not really realistic. For a lot of people, it's seeing how can I downgrade it? Do you really need all of the notifications you're currently getting? I love social media. I definitely think there's a place for it. But I don't allow it to push me stress, meaning I don't allow I don't allow any notifications from social media. I choose when I engage with social media. So I pick times a day. I go in, I deal with whatever I have to deal with and check out all the things and see what's going on in the world. And then I back out of it. And I and it's, you know, on the days that I spend excessive amounts of time in it, I can tell my stress level go up. I can feel my stress level going up. So I have to be very intentional, you know, to not spend hours pouring into that and and really, really honor my time blocks that I have set up for it. I usually check Instagram when I'm in the bath at night, which seems counterintuitive, but it's sort of fun in a way to kind of see like friends, babies, and like, I follow a lot of good news stuff. I wonder if engaging in something that detracts from your sensory rest is also adding to your mental rest, right? Because I'm not like obsessing on work or whatever. Yeah, I think that's really, that's really smart. And I think a lot of us should, should take that example. We should tailor our feeds to the good because unfortunately, otherwise your feed can make you crazy. If you have too much of the, the bad, kind of the bad controversial stuff always coming at you. And so I think sometimes it is good to have maybe one or two of your social media feeds where you have specifically tailored it to the things that that edify you, that make you happy, that make you smile. Maybe it's all your friends and no one else that's on it. And you can make sure that what you're consuming actually is is leading you in the direction you want to go mentally and emotionally. Yeah, that's what I try to do. I have lots of I follow like 
design, you know, like interior design things and food things and good news things and my kids and my friends. And, and then I do find that it's, it acts as a little bit of a respite from like obsessing about work or what I have to do, my to-do list, you know, so it can, it can be positive, I suppose. I absolutely think it can. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So the creative rest, that really blew my mind. And I think, to be honest, it's because my creativity is where I get so much connection with something bigger than me. It's where I get my inspiration and how I keep going and iterating and, you know, thinking about what's next in my life. And like, especially in the last year. Like, I feel like I've hit a wall and I've been spending so much time thinking about why, why can't I innovate? Like, I'm so bogged down in the tactical stuff and like, where's the joy? Where's the connection? Like, and so it was super interesting for me to contemplate this idea of creative depletion that when you are feeling absolutely, you know, like you can't get that creative spark. You can't get excited about what's next, that there, that there's something called, you know, creative exhaustion. Yeah. So creative energy is like any of the other types of energy we've discussed. So all of these seven types of rest are also seven types of energy that we can deplete within ourselves. And so with creative energy. I think a lot of us, when we think about creativity, we're thinking about kind of the artistic form of that, you know, with art, music, theater, those kinds of things. But creativity in itself is any type of innovation, really is any kind of problem solving, if we're going to get down to the kind of the bare bones of what creativity is. And so, you know, if you're having to solve, think outside of the box, brainstorm, any of those things, you're using creative energy. And, you know, Gwen, if you're, you're a bit of a Renaissance woman, I mean, you, you do a lot of things. And so you're pulling creativity from multiple different areas. And then if you add on top of that, where most of, most of us don't even think about your mom, it takes creativity just to parent your children. So there's creativity being pulled from so many different parts of ourselves that if you're not intentional about pouring back into that particular bucket, it's one that a lot of people have drained, especially mm-hmm. over the past, what, two years now. Because even the things 
that we have always done the same way. You know, once the pandemic hit, everything changed. So you couldn't do even the normal things the normal way anymore. Grocery shopping, just basic things changed. And so I think what what most of us have to recognize is that our creativity is an energy bucket, just like all of the others. And if you can pour out of your emotional bucket or your physical bucket, you can pour out of your creative bucket and it can become depleted as well. So how do we connect back and kind of rejuvenate in the creative sense? Yeah, that was my favorite aspect of the research as we were looking into it, because I think so many of us had experienced it, but didn't know what exactly we had experienced. So creative rest is the rest we experience when we allow ourselves to appreciate beauty in whatever form and let it awaken creativity inside of us. And so a lot of people had had an experience where they've gone to the beach or the mountains or somewhere out in nature. And it's like just being in that place made them feel better. And they couldn't explain it. They didn't, you know, there wasn't anything scientific they could explain what was happening, but they, they knew it. They knew that they felt restored and revived in those settings. Well, I loved when I was doing, when I was looking at all the research related to these type of topics, there was one that I found where it looked at the MRI of brains of people who said that oceans were where they had this creative kind of restful experience where they did the MRIs after people that looked at the actual ocean. They did the MRI after they looked at a picture of the ocean, and then they did it after they looked at colors that just resembled the ocean. And for those people who said the ocean is a place where I feel restored and rejuvenated, they had brain activity in the same area in all three instances. For those people who said that they got that from looking at mountains, nothing. And so I thought that was so interesting Because it's, first of all, highly individualized to whatever it is that awakens that creative spark inside of you. And it's not just nature. You know, nature is how a lot of people experience it. But some people experience it by consuming music or looking at art or or watching someone dance or looking at theater. And, you know, the thing that I oftentimes get asked is, so is creative rest when I go you know, on one of those girls nights out where we drink wine and we paint pictures and we, or we do pottery or whatever it is, actually that's creative work because you're, you're getting social rest because you're out with your girls, but you're actually putting another demand on your creativity to create something. Creative rest is when you're actually appreciating what has already been created and then allowing that to create something inside of you. Wow. So input versus output. If you're outputting, then it's not classified as rest, even though it might be fabulous and you might be enjoying it. Exactly. Because you should enjoy your work. I mean, that's the hope is that we get to a point that we're all enjoying our work. So you should enjoy it. But if you're making pottery with the girls, you're getting social rest while doing creative work. If you want to get creative rest, do something where you are allowing yourself to be infused with the beauty that's already been created. How do we begin to identify the types of rest that we need, what we're deficient in? Is there a process you use to help people identify what they need? There is. That was one of the number one questions every patient asked me. <laughs> Usually what the, what the statement would be is, I need all seven. How do I get all seven right now? 
So you, you don't try to just jump and get all seven at the same time. Chances are there's only one or two that you're deficient in. The others, you're probably already have some idea of how to get those. But usually there's one or two that most of us either have not been very intentional about getting rest in. So we're having to be a little bit more intentional. And so from that is what the rest quiz came from at restquiz.com. It's just a free assessment to give people a really a score on what their levels are in each of the seven types of rest. That way they can choose the one or two that has their greatest level of deficit and then focus their attention about getting more rest in those areas. Another way you can do that is really just to take a look at your day. Where are you pouring out the most energy? You know, are you pouring out physically because your job has a lot of, you know, lifting and pulling and things of that nature? Are you pouring out socially because you're with people all day? Are you pouring out creatively because you're always innovating and problem solving? Wherever you're pouring out, if you're not intentionally filling back up, that's probably a place of deficit. Have you noticed that when people put this into practice, that their lives really open up in a different way? Interestingly enough, I get a lot of emails from men who, which I are not the audience necessarily that I wrote the book for. I wrote the book as uh, one tired mama to another tired mama. Right. kind of how I wrote the book. But interestingly enough, I get a lot of emails from men whose wives then go tell them about what they've read. And I recall one from a gentleman who I talk about this concept where it talk, where many couples don't spend a lot of time face to face. They're face to face when they fall in love. And then after they fall in love, it's kind of face to bills, face to kids, face to screen, everything but their lover. And so one of the things I challenge couples with is just five minutes a day where they're practicing to being each other's emotional and social rest with a simple question of how was your day and refusing to let the other person get away with a one word, okay, fine type answer and, and look in their eyes when you're asking it. And so he mentioned his wife asked him to begin this and they started this process and his, his email touched me so much because what he stated was, I didn't realize until we started this process that I had fallen out of love with my wife. Like she was a roommate, like we, you know, I wasn't divorcing her, but she was just a roommate. She was just this person that I did life with. And in those five minutes, which then obviously branched out into more, we, he stated, we ended up falling back in love with each other, Aww. having more intimacy because now we felt more connected to each other and completely changed their relationship. Wow. That's like a bonus from rest. <laughs> That's not something I ever kind of planned because his statement was very blunt. He was like, I'm having more sex now with my <laughs> wife than I've ever had. And I'm thinking my first thought was I didn't write that book. So <laughs> I'm not sure what you're talking about. But it was so cool just to read how that transpired just by them understanding each other's rest needs. Um, another gentleman's statement was that I had a challenge that I was doing for a while, a 30-day rest challenge. And his statement was, you know, I'm doing these little, you know, one or two minute things that you're sending me to do every day. And, I, you know, I'm on day 15. And I'm thinking, is this helping? You know, is this doing anything? And he's like, and today I woke up and I haven't slept for eight hours, like straight through the night in over 20 years. He goes, and I woke up this morning and I was like, what happened? You know, <laughs> it's like, I actually slept through an entire night. He's like, I don't know what those little one minute things are doing, but they're doing something. 
And so I love that because it, 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 it really shows that it doesn't take carving out some, you know, month long sabbatical or something that's unrealistic for people. It's small changes. It's the intentionality of it. I love that because, you know, we do live busy lives and I think small changes, you know, lead to big incremental benefits, you know, for, if we are mindful about ourselves, how we feel, how we're relating to the people that we love, like, are we forcing ourselves to do something we're not, you know, really wanting to do, et cetera. So I love bringing that kind of mindfulness, especially to, to the relationships, you know, cause it is a give and take with everybody. And you're right that, you know, as much as we love the people in our lives, like a lot of the relationships, there's a, there's a lot of giving that goes on. And it's, I think we can find that replenishment from those people that we give to all the time, if we're mindful about it, right? Absolutely. Because you don't want to stop giving to your spouse or to your kids or to your, your clients or coworkers or whatever it is that you're in this world to, to pour back into you don't want to get to that place where you can't give. And so in order for us to, to really stay at our highest level of capacity, we have to rest. You know, I, I, sometimes when I look at just basic things like different cures for things that are out there and all the innovation that, that is possible in the world, all the different problems that are still yet to be solved. I'm thinking if we had a, if we had a culture of people who were well-rested, who actually, understood their, their, the value of their yeses and their no's and the need for boundaries and building up their internal relationships and their own emotional and social and spiritual well-being, what would it look like? That's the hope that I have in, in, in just the whole process, that if we get enough people who are living at their highest capacity, I mean, it could be an amazing transformation. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith. I hope you'll pick up a copy of her book, Sacred Rest. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, 